Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First Samuel 13, and we'll read the chapter in its entirety. Saul lived for one year, then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in the tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews across the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people following him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greeted him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within, within, the, seven, within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. 
and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the maddocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass to the pass of Michmash. Each week we remember that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. And even as we read this morning out of the account of 1 Samuel, Lord, we just uh, thank you for your word and just the account, Lord, of, of who you are and who, that you are to be revered and, and praised. And Lord, as Pastor Aaron brings your word this morning, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would just open up our hearts, Lord, that you would just cause our, our faith, Lord, just to grow, that we might just realize our utter dependence upon you, Lord, and even through the, the preaching of your word, you would just uh, grant in us just a, a daily awareness of our need for you and that our lives may just grow, Lord, in, in obedience to you, just to walking in the light of your word, uh, walking, Lord, just uh, giving you glory and honor and praise. We just uh, thank you and pray for uh, just your hearts to, to your, your, your Holy Spirit, Lord, just to open our hearts. In your name, amen. You may be seated. All right, thank you, David. So the title this morning of our message is Pitfalls of Compromise. Pitfalls of Compromise. And this is uh, not quite as a famous of passage as we have in 1 Samuel 15, where we see another compromise of Saul. But we certainly see the beginnings of a pattern in his life. And want to look this morning at uh, this account of Saul's early compromises as the king of Israel and how we too must watch out for similar compromises in our own faith, areas where we may be tempted to disregard the word of the Lord and bring about the consequences of that. So we, uh, moving through this account, Saul's position as king has just begun and it seemed to start off with a bang he had a wonderful victory over the Ammonites the people of Israel the 12 tribes had united like never before perhaps not since the days of of Joshua and they came together and fought against this threat and yet very soon we begin to see things crumbling apart And last week we looked at Samuel's message. We spent a little bit of extra time there in chapter 12, where Samuel, after Saul had been anointed king after this great victory, he warned the people that if they they did not fear the Lord, if they did not serve the Lord with their whole hearts, that they would be swept away. Back in chapter 12, verse 24, he said, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And this message is ringing in the ears of the account this morning. And sadly, we see the warning was not heeded. Now, there's just a a couple quick uh, interpretive challenges before we get started. I want to point out to you, uh, depending on what translation you're reading from, you may have noticed Uh, even in in verse 1 there, um, there are some different ways that this is taken. And I guess there's a bit of discrepancy in some of the original Hebrew manuscripts uh, that we have as far as exactly what is meant. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard as well, which states that Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two and then reigned for two years over Israel. Uh, However, a translation like the NASB says Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. So a little bit of uh, struggle here with exactly the numbers and the dates. Uh, And so as we have to remind ourselves from time to time, we are 
we are looking at a translation of original texts, and those original autographs are what we see as the inspired Word of God. Now, that's not to cast doubt on your confidence in the Word of God, but um, you know, even thinking about the work Josh is doing with the OPPO language, the challenges that come sometimes in translation, uh, we do sometimes get these discrepancies. And so, uh, as far as I could tell, the, 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 the NASB uh, translation... Um, the, the, the Legacy Standard Bible translated the same way that this was more of a statement of Saul's uh, beginning age at his rule as, as king. He was 30 and then he reigned for 42 years, which also lines up with what Paul says uh, in, in the book of Acts. And so in, uh, Paul makes a reference to Saul's reign in Acts 13.21 that Saul reigned 42 years. Uh, 40 years, he says. So so there's one uh, challenge, like I say, it's uh, one of these things we do come across time to time, but I think it does make more sense in the context here. If this is meant to say Saul was about 30 years old as he began his position as king and reigned 42 years. Um, the other interpretive challenge is, um, we probably wouldn't pick it up initially, but there's a, there's a statement about the size of the chariot army of the Philistines as 30,000 and, uh, and, and many think there's probably uh, a bit of uh, something lost in translation there as far as the number, because that would be an insanely massive army of chariots for that time. And uh, John Gill made this statement about it. He said, uh, Pharaoh and his large host had but 600 chariots. Jabin, king of Canaan, had indeed 900. David took from the king of Zobah 1,000 chariots. And whether they were all chariots of war is not certain. And Solomon uh, indeed had 1,400 chariots, but they do not appear to be all chariots of war. So, uh, again, there's some challenges as far as the, the exact numbers here. Um, he, he, uh, John Gill offered the suggestion that maybe that this was more than just chariots of war, but also carriages that would be used to carry men or to bring back um, any spoils of war. Or perhaps it could be even that there were multiple men in each carriage, uh, up to 10 men sometimes. So that would be 3,000 um, men, you know, filling, uh, uh, he said 3,000 men would fill 300 chariots if the number was three. So just to be aware, there are some of these challenges that we face. But nonetheless, we, we get the picture here of the situation in Israel. And uh, Mike is just going to put a map up for me quickly to just help visualize the, the situation that Saul has found himself in. And, uh, oh, I already had it up. <laughs> is it coming on? So just a map to kind of visualize. We have this description of the situation. So we're told that Saul is in Gilgal. And this was the place where Samuel had crowned him as king. And he's there with his... Uh, standing army that he has appointed. So we're told that he appointed 3,000 men from the original 300,000. So Saul as king has created himself a standing army. Jonathan has taken 1,000 of them a little distance from Gilgal. And, uh, and so we have just a quick picture. I have this fancy little laser pointer thing, which all the kids will like. Um, so here is Gilgal. And we have the... Philistia over here. So they just finished defeating the Ammonites up here, this attack from, from, uh, on Jabesh Gilead, which is right there. So now they're back at Gilgal, and there is, um, they, they've taken out a garrison. We're told Jonathan took out a garrison at, at, at Gibeah, uh, or uh, Gibeah. Well, there's Gibeah, and then there's uh, Geba, something like that. So now the, the Philistines are angry and they're coming in. Um, we're told that they camp in Michmash. They send out raiders uh, out to Beth Horon, out to Orpha, and down into the wilderness area. So there's raiders coming in. And Saul is sitting here in Gilgal. Um, thanks, Micah. That's good. So just a little bit of a visual to help you see kind of the situation that Saul has backed himself into. And as... Jonathan takes out the garrison at, at Get Giba. I'll just say Giba. I'm probably pronouncing these names terribly wrong. Uh, it has the effect of 
basically throwing a rock into a hornet's nest. I don't know how many of you have thrown a rock into a hornet's nest. I'm sure one time or another we've all uh, had that opportunity and you see the immediate effect is the hornets come swarming out and they, they, they come to attack whatever has disturbed the hive. And that's exactly the effect that is taking place here. Jonathan takes out the garrison. Uh, some believe it wasn't the whole garrison, but maybe a leader of the garrison. Either way, obviously it has this avalanche effect. As this garrison falls, it, it sets in motion this avalanche of Philistine armies coming against Israel. And Saul has disbanded his massive army of 300,000 from the fight against the Ammonites. Now, what we find is Israel's response is one of desperation. This huge horde of Philistines, they are trained for war. They have a well-experienced army. They're well-equipped with, with weapons and armor. They have horses. There are chariots. And they are now mounting their forces against Israel because Israel had, in their moment of courage, taken out this garrison. And so we have this desperate situation. The, the people of Israel are disbanding. They're, they're fleeing away. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding in wells and cisterns and tombs. And, and they're, they're crossing the Jordan River to, to get as far away as they can from the battle that is about to take place. And not only that, to make matters worse, we're told at the end of the passage that the Philistines had restricted the Israelites from forging weapons. They were not allowed to have blacksmiths and forge weapons for themselves. You know, when we are constantly battling our government with gun laws and gun restrictions, the ability to, to bear arms, and uh, here the Philistines had put in uh, blacksmith restrictions, and they weren't even allowing them to, to sharpen their own, own tools for farming. They had to come to the Philistines to get the, their, their farming equipment sharpened and pay top dollar for it. All of this to keep the Israelite people subdued. So we, we get this obviously hopeless looking situation and right in the middle of all of this chaos and all of this uh, these threats around the, the, the nation of Israel, it, it almost has the, the idea of some of you this summer having battled uh, wildfires where you uh, are just finished extinguishing one flame on this side of the property and then you turn around and another flame has started over here and you have to shift everything over and begin extinguishing that flame and no sooner is that one out than, than one starts on the other side and this is sort of the picture of Israel. They are surrounded by nations that hate them, that feel angry that they have been dispossessed from their land and so they spend so much time trying to war against these nations. And right in the middle of this whole scene of hopelessness and threat, we have Saul's compromise. Saul is supposed to wait there from, uh, we know back in even 1 Samuel 10, um, there was a mention of when Saul goes to Gilgal, 10 verse 8, he was to wait seven days for Saul or for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. Now, if that's this, the, the timing's a little bit difficult to exactly know how many days had passed. Is that a, the same command that Samuel gave there that we're seeing disobeyed here? Did Samuel repeat that command uh, at this time? Uh, is a little difficult to say, but obviously Saul knew he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. The sacrifice which only the, the, the high priest was lawfully supposed to offer to God. But Saul begins to panic. He sees his men disbanding. His army is dwindling. They're, they're running and hiding. They're retreating. The people that are with him are told they're literally shaking in their armor at the threat of the Philistines gathering around. And so Saul goes ahead prematurely and offers the sacrifice that Samuel was going to. And in, in this sacrifice, we clearly see that God is not looking for our sincerity or our innovation or our ingenuity. God is looking for undivided obedience to his word at all times. God is not interested in our well-meaning sincerity or our, our innovations. He wants 
his people undivided obedience to his word. And it's at this point that Saul compromises and disregards the Lord's word through the prophet Samuel. Furthermore, we know that he uh, was not lawfully supposed to offer this sacrifice. So he's setting himself up as a sort of priest, though he has not been appointed. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And even the message that Samuel had just proclaimed to the Israelites also would have applied here. That God requires the people of Israel to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with your whole heart. And it's at this point we find Saul himself compromise the word. And as the narrative continues from this point in 1 Samuel, what we'll see is what begins as a whisper of compromise in Saul's life rises to a deafening scream over his reign. This is, yes, just we may think, well, this seems like kind of a small thing. It seems, you know, like he he was trying to do what he thought was right. But this compromise, this divided heart, begins to manifest itself more and more clearly as we see Saul's reign continue. And you could just imagine, no sooner did Saul offer this sacrifice. Does Samuel arrive onto the scene? We may think, well, was Samuel testing Saul? Uh, Was this set up as as a, a test to see what he would do? But nonetheless, Samuel comes and he asks this probing question. You can almost hear the the seriousness in the voice of Samuel as he approaches Saul. Saul is feeling pretty good about himself. He he comes and he's ready to greet Samuel. The word actually means even bless Samuel. He's, he's, He's assuming that what he has done is actually good. And Samuel asks this probing question, what have you done? Now, as we look at this this morning, Saul's response to Samuel in this compromise, I want to just identify a few pitfalls that I think are threats to all of us that may tempt us to compromise the word of God, compromise our obedience to the word of God. The pitfalls that Saul expresses in his response to Samuel. First of all, we see the pitfall of self-preservation. The pitfall of self-preservation in verse 11, as Samuel comes to Saul, he asks, Samuel asks, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistine had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul is looking around at the threat that is looming over him. He knows what God had instructed him through Samuel to wait for Samuel to come and make the offering and give him instruction on what to do. And yet he disregarded the word of God. And one of the pitfalls that he stepped into was this pitfall of self-preservation. Saul sought to preserve his life. And and there is a pitfall in this for us as well. We are often tempted to preserve ourselves in in various ways while compromising the word of God. If self-preservation leads us to disobey God's clear instruction, God's clear word, then it is not something that is actually going to help us. Saul feels like obedience to God at this point, is going to cost him his life, maybe cost him his nation, as far as he could tell. But we don't see Saul cry out to God in prayer in this moment of desperation. We don't see that he sent any messengers, perhaps, that could have sought out Samuel for further instruction. Saul simply began thinking on his own terms, with his own wisdom, and failed to obey the word of God. And we have a statement in Mark 8. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, in calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We see throughout the scriptures, God is not interested in us coming up with our own ways to preserve ourselves. He's interested in us wholeheartedly serving him, walking in obedience to his command and trusting him to sustain us and to carry us through. And we live in an age where the Bible is seen as hate, as hate speech, hateful writing. It's judgmental. It's bigoted. We see not only um, throughout the world where Christians are literally losing their lives because of their profession of faith in Christ, but even here in the Western nations, more and more as hostility grows, Christians are having to choose between their job and their faith, compromising the word of God. Will we redefine marriage and keep our jobs or keep our institutions or keep our education system, whatever it might be? Will, will we redefine what God has called good and evil uh, in order to preserve ourselves somehow? And I know that our experience of, of suffering is, is very small in many ways. If you think about what Christians throughout the world are, are forced to, to choose between the life of their family, the life of their children, having a place to eat, or holding fast to their confession of faith, standing upon the word of God. Will there come a time in Canada where we either, and we see this happening already, where, where parents uh, maybe have a child that... Uh, you know, it's decided based on the, the council of the, the school system, whatever it is, that they want to just uh, magically change genders. And, and this is announced to the parents, and the parents show some resistance. They're, they're, they're not wanting to go along with this. And the government step in and say, well, then you don't have the right to have your children anymore. If you can't toe the line, then you're not qualified to keep your children. And the parent having to choose, am I going to stand upon the word of God and entrust that he will sustain me, that he will see me through this? somehow or am I going to compromise for the sake of preserving myself or preserving my family God forbid that this trajectory continue in this country but we we don't know either way as Christians we have to decide now that we will stand upon the word of God and if we're offered a way to preserve ourselves through compromise that we will in fact resist and entrust ourselves to the Lord even the Christians to whom the, uh, the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews is written, the author tells them in Hebrews 10, in, in encouraging them, he says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we stand upon the word of God. We, we seek to obey the word of God, no matter how, uh, how embarrassed of it this culture might be. We entrust ourselves to God. We don't compromise. We don't step into the pitfall of self preservation as Saul did. Secondly, we see another pitfall which we're all prone to step into, and that is the pitfall of impatience. And we see in Saul's response to Samuel, he essentially blames the prophet for having delayed. He, he says, uh, as I looked around and I, I saw all of these threats coming against me, he said, and uh, that you did not come within the appointed days. He literally throws Samuel under the bus here and says, this is basically your fault, Samuel. I stood here waiting and waiting and waiting. Day one goes by, day two goes by, day three, day four, day five, day six. Right at the end of day seven, I couldn't take it anymore. I made the offering 
And then, of course, Samuel shows up right at the end of day seven. So I don't think he actually was outside of the appointed days, but he did seem to wait until the very last minute. Uh, you know, and we see, um, for some reason, preachers always like to, to run late. Maybe that's something we need to repent of as well. But um, for whatever reason, Samuel was delayed. And the, the, the excuse for Saul's compromise he gives was that really of impatience. He was tired of waiting for Samuel. And so he went ahead and made the unlawful sacrifice. And we see that God often does delay his promises as a way to test his people to see if their heart is steadfast. Think of Noah having received the promise of of judgment coming through the means of rain, the earth being flooded like no one had ever seen before, and and God saying he's going to destroy everything, and that Noah is to build this ark through which the animals would be preserved, and he and his family is a remnant of mankind. And yet, for many years, Noah is laboring to build this ark. Some estimate as high as... 75 years it took him to to build the ark uh, as he labored from the time God gave him the command. And even longer between the time that the animals came and everything was ready and the rains actually came. And yet Noah remained steadfast. Or Abraham, who was promised an offspring. He was promised a son through Sarah. And yet it wasn't until 25 years had passed before Abraham saw the fulfillment of that You see, sometimes God calls us as his people to patiently endure. And it's in the patient endurance that we learn to depend upon him. And we have to avoid this pitfall of growing impatient with the Lord and thereby compromising his word. Peter warns of this as well in 2 Peter 3.3. He says that in the last days, scoffers will come and they will say, where is Jesus? Where is his appearing? You Christians, you're talking about this return of the Messiah. Well, where is he? And, And there's this sense of mocking and Christians are tempted to say, well, you know, maybe he's not coming. Maybe this is all a fabricated story. Maybe we're here spending our lives for the king who's not even coming back for us. And there can be this danger of growing impatient with the timing of the Lord. Or perhaps we are praying for a lost loved one and we've prayed for weeks and months and years and it seems to us that the Lord is slow to answer our request and we're tempted to just give up, to just why bother praying for things at all? We're called to be steadfast. We're called to patiently endure and avoid this pitfall of impatience that Saul stepped into and compromise the word of God. Something that strikes us as we look, about the, uh, look at the, the thousands of years of history here through which God is carrying out his plan of redemption, carrying out his plan to bring Christ into the world. It's thousands and thousands of years. And, and we would think, okay, maybe maybe. Do all of this within, you know, maybe 500 years would be reasonable. But really waiting, you know, 6,000 years we're now into this roughly and still waiting for the fulfillment of God's word in its fullness and the glorification of all things, the deliverance of the earth. And, and, and as a people, we especially in our, in our uh, modern day are, are an impatient people. We want faster internet and and microwaves that will heat things faster and cars that get us there faster and and we want everything immediately and quickly and the idea of of, of waiting can sometimes be very foreign to us but let us not because of our impatience compromise what God has clearly called us to as his people thirdly there's another pitfall that Saul steps into that we also need to avoid so that we do not find ourselves compromising the word of God, is the pitfall of, uh, we could call it the sincerity fallacy, the sincerity fallacy, which is the idea that simply because I am sincere, that God will receive my work or my act of service. 
Simply being sincere is all that God is really looking for. And what Saul wanted seems to be a good thing. He, he realizes that he's in danger from the enemies around him, and he wants the blessing of God. He wants the blessing of, of the Jehovah. Of the, he's, not, he's not bowing down to an idol. He's not making an offering to a pagan god. His desire seems good, but he compromises because he assumes that his sincerity is all that God is really looking for. But what God is looking for is not simply sincerity, but obedience to his word, to trust him at what he had said. And this is where Saul also messes up. Today, many Christians seem to have this same notion that as long as somebody is sincere in what they are doing, that God will accept it, God will receive it. And we see all kinds of strange things brought into the, the worship of the church from, from you know, com- components of, of uh, worship that, that, that we don't find um, either historically in the church or biblically. And we, we just assume that, that because God is, is looking at my sincerity, well, it's okay if we you know, just disregard the difference between man and woman and, and we disregard the clear instructions that God given us for, for roles in the home or roles in the church and, and, and women can assume the, the role of pastor just as well as men. And as long as God sees the sincerity of their heart, then he will receive this as something pleasing. But that's simply not the case. That, that is a fallacy. It's a lie. God desires us to obey him and to trust him. We think even uh, early on in the, the, the priesthood, the sons of Aaron offering the strange incense, creating their own innovative mix of incense, that which God had not instructed them. And they thought maybe God would be pleased with this worship. Maybe God would appreciate our sincerity, what we're trying to do here, trying to mix things up a little bit, trying to make it more interesting for the people. And God consumed them with fire from the altar because they had acted unlawfully. They failed to obey God's word. And so as Christians, we we need to test uh, what we're doing, not only as a church body, but in our homes and even in our thinking. Am am I walking and living a life that is consistent with the word of God? Am I basing my decisions upon God's word or simply upon my own preference, upon some gut feeling that I have and assuming sincerity is all that God is looking for? Proverbs 8.26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. And we see the, the Pharisees, for example, were sincere as they handed Jesus over to be crucified. But in so doing, they crucified the, the author of life. Paul said he thought he was serving God as he went from church to church, jailing Christians and persecuting them. He thought he was sincerely helping the cause of God in the world. And Jesus even said in John 16, 2, that there's coming a time to his disciples that when those who kill you are assuming they're doing a service to God. And yes, they are sincere. But you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely in opposition to the living God. Really, the test is, are we acting in such a way that he has instructed us in his word? And the final pitfall this morning that I want to look at is the the pitfall, we could say, of ritualism, which... Saul also seems to have this misunderstanding of why it is the offerings are made. In fact, he he so badly wanted to see this uh, ritual take place, even though, yes, God had instructed the Israelites to make offerings. There were were only the priests that were, were supposed to be making them. And so he says there that he forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul, knowing what Samuel had said, knowing his limitations, 
forced himself, which already implies he knew that what he was doing was, was unlawful, but he had this notion, and we'll see this again in the life of Saul, this notion that it's simply the, the outward act, the, the sacrifice itself had some sort of maybe mystical power to appease God or to earn God's favor, or somehow that, that in so doing he would gain for himself certain victory over the Philistines. He, he completely missed the point, and this comes through, if you just Flip over for a moment to uh, Samuel 15. Of course, we'll look at this in greater detail, but this famous response when, when uh, Saul, uh, in, a, in a different way, confuses God's desire in, in sacrifice. So 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel responds to Saul later in a similar situation, and he tells him, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul assumed that because he was going through the outward motion of offering the sacrifice that God would then in turn be pleased, which is not only a form of, of works righteousness, but it is, it is really missing the point of the sacrifice completely. The, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament did nothing to actually atone for sin. They, they were powerless to remove the debt of sin. They were simply a pointer to what Christ would do upon the cross for our sin. And so they are simply an expression of faith to God, a, a way of these Old Testament believers to express their trust in the promises of God and in the word of God. And yet it is always, God says, about the heart. He's not interested in merely animals being slaughtered and burnt uh, in his name. He desires obedience from the heart. And this also is an ongoing point of confusion, a pitfall for the people of God. Jesus would rebuke the, um, again, the religious leaders in Matthew 15, 6. He says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we see that this idea of just a ritualistic uh, worship to God that is disconnected from a heart of faith, a heart that trusts the Lord, that, that fears the Lord, as Samuel had said, is all that God is looking for. It's simply not true. And Jesus exposed it, and Samuel's exposing it here in, in, in Saul's life, and we too must guard ourselves against this. While it's important that there is outward uh, evidences of our faith, you know that we are gathering together as the saints, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're called to, to be generous with what the Lord's given and giving to the, the needs of the church, giving to the needs of others. We are, are called to, to offer up prayers and supplications for rulers and governors, for one another. We're, we're called to do many things. Uh, even you know, today, we have opportunity to partake of the Lord's table. And we're going to later go down to the river and we're going to see the, the wonderful ordinance of baptism that God has instructed. We need to do these things. These are matters of obedience to God. But these things should flow from a heart that fears the Lord, that delights in him, that, that wants to honor him. For it's only then that they are truly pleasing to God when they are carried out in faith. So we too need to guard our hearts against these same pitfalls that Saul had fallen into, the pitfall of self-preservation or impatience or a misplaced understanding of sincerity or of some form of ritualism that somehow is going to please God and all the while compromising his word. We, we seek to obey his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Saul's disobedience cost him his kingdom. It cost him having a son to sit upon the throne of Israel. 
And we see oftentimes at the beginning of God establishing something, there is a, an extra measure of severity when those uh, who are in that place disregard God's word. We can think of Adam and Eve in the garden. People, you know, I've heard people ask, like, I don't really get it. What, what was so bad about Adam and Eve eating a piece of forbidden fruit? Why did that bring about the fall of humanity and bring us into condemnation of eternal hellfire? How, how can that be the consequence? But see, it's, it's, it's a matter of, of the heart, of, of violating the command of a holy God who is infinitely holy, infinitely worthy of praise and worship, and to disregard his word is to disregard him who has given it. And so we see sometimes God does make an example, and I think Saul stands as an example to all of the kings who will follow. If you will not heed the word of God, then you will be swept away. We see even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit, lying about how much they had given, and they are struck dead immediately. And we don't see that same severity always throughout the New Testament as far as temporal consequences. But God certainly is just in these things because he is infinitely holy. And the the consequence coming eternally for all those who compromise the word is far greater than even the temporal consequences. But the good news comes to us in the statement that Samuel makes to Saul. Yes, Saul has failed. Yes, Saul's kingdom is going to come to an end, his his rule as king. But God has sought after a man after his own heart whom he will establish as king. And in this, we have this, again, this promise of a deliverer, promise of one who will come, who will walk in obedience to God's word. And in a sense, we say, yes, that's pointing forward to David, who is the man after God's own heart that God himself will establish. But as we all know, David certainly was not, uh, was not fully innocent in his life. He also fell into various pits. But something that we, we see not only in this is, is the, the, the pointing forward to the the, the one whom with God is, is well pleased, this prince of the people, this man after God's own heart, we find it points us forward to Christ who would come from the line of David, come as the perfect uh, king of Israel, the one who never disobeyed the word of God, who never compromised the word of God for any of these pitfalls, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Then going and instead of Preserving himself, Jesus willingly gives himself upon the cross for our sins and is raised on the third day. And this entire uh, failure of Saul in turn points us forward to Christ who would come and succeed where all the kings of Israel fail. Jesus succeeds and offers himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And sadly, we don't see Saul repent at Samuel's rebuke. We don't see any deep sense of remorse, for certainly if he had repented and acknowledged his sin, he would have found God to be a gracious and forgiving God. And uh, Matthew Henry made this statement about Saul's lack of repentance. He said that when he was Charged with disobedience, he justified himself in what he had done and gave no sign at all of repentance for it. It is not sinning that ruins men, but sinning and not repenting, falling and not getting up, Matthew Henry says. And so while there's a sense in which we look at this and we say, well, I have fallen into all of these pitfalls. I have fallen short in so many ways. Even this past week, I I can see ways in which I have been tempted or I have compromised the clear word of God. And, and so our response doesn't need to be despair, but to come before the Lord with humility, come before the Lord with repentance and brokenness and saying, God, I have violated your word. I have failed. I have fallen short. And setting our eyes upon Christ, the sinless one, the one with whom God is well pleased, the man after his own heart, and trusting that his finished work on the cross is the means of our forgiveness and then rising up in the strength of his spirit to begin walking 
in obedience to the Lord and not compromising when we are faced with these various temptations. I'll leave you with Hebrews 10:5. Says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And Christ freely offers himself as our perfect substitute. And so we'll pray as we close and we will have opportunity to remember the body broken and the blood shed as we come to the table together. The once for all sacrifice that Jesus himself gave for all those who trust in him, who repent of their sin and believe upon him putting on this covenant sign of baptism as an indication that I belong to Christ. I identify with him. I I hide myself in his death and resurrection. So let's pray, and then we will partake of the table together. Bow with me, please. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we know that in these accounts, there is a sense in which it's so easy to point a finger to, to look at the, the shortfalls and failures of others. But Lord, I pray that you would keep us from, Lord, failing to see the three fingers that are pointing back at us, Lord. That we would realize that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Lord, that we have all, at various times and various ways, compromised your word. We have found ourselves sinking down into a pit of despair, stuck in the mire. And God, it's, it's you who, by your grace, have called us. You have come in the flesh, in the person of Christ. You have lived and succeeded where every man, every king, every ruler had previously failed and then willingly went to make atonement for our sin. And so we give you thanks and praise. I, I do pray you grant us a heart of humility before you, a heart that fears you, Lord. Give our children great boldness in a day that they may be called to sacrifice much for the sake of Christ. Would you give them the courage and the heart to stand strong? Help us as parents to equip them, as grandparents, Lord. Pray for the young folks as well, Lord, maybe finding themselves in a a season of waiting, of impatience, of uncertainty, of what's next, what to do. God, when they, may they rest in you. May their heart not become divided or be tempted to compromise, but to hold fast to you. We thank you for the cup and for the bread, Lord, for all that it means as we consider Christ this morning together. And so we pray your blessing upon it. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.